people die badly um, and families aren't well supported, then the community really has a heavy load of grief and complicated grief can, you know, just go through a whole community really. So we've, we've, we really need to get it right at the time. My name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. Although I'm a politician and an economist, this isn't a podcast about politics or economics. It's about living a good life, which is an idea that goes back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. What Aristotle meant by a good life was the life that one would like to live, a life with pleasure, meaning and richness of spirit, the life that most of us were trying to live until everything else got in the way. In this podcast, I'll seek out guests, not because they're smart, but because they're wise. I'll speak with writers, athletes and social justice campaigners, with people who've been lucky and those who've experienced hard times. I've found their stories fascinating, and I hope you do too. Clare Holland House is a palliative care facility located on the eastern shores of Lake Burley Griffin in Canberra. In my running training, I'll often pass by the facility, and it usually brings to mind the two people I came to visit. One was Peter Vaness, a young journalist who died in 2012. The other was Liz Dawson, a dynamo community campaigner who died in 2014. For both of them, I was impressed at the care they received from Claire Holland House. They died too young, but they had what I think of as a good death. Nikki Johnson is a nurse practitioner at Claire Holland House. She began her career working in haematology and cancer centres in Sydney. Eighteen years ago, Nikki moved into palliative care, where she works both as a researcher and practitioner. Nikki is a mother of six and has one granddaughter. She's what you might call a death expert, having seen thousands of people at the end of their lives. Today we're not going to talk about policy questions like euthanasia or advanced care directives, but instead we'll focus on the philosophical issues. What is it to have a good death? And what can an expert in palliative care teach us about living a good life? Mm. Nikki, thanks for being here today. Thanks very much for having me, Andrew. Can you tell me a bit about how you first came into palliative care and what attracted you to the discipline? Mm. I'd been working as a, as a registered nurse um, for about um, 10 years and I'd even worked overseas in England for a little while. And working in haematology and cancer, I was struck by people often having not such a good death. And I thought that there had to be another way um, to do this better. So I went and did some more study in palliative care and then um, came and worked in the hospice when it used to be ACT hospice. And that was about 18 years ago. And tell me a bit more about not having such a good death. What is, what's, mm. what's, a, what's a not so good death? So, and I suppose I can only really answer this from myself. Um, so in, in my experience, seeing um, people die without actually having a chance to talk about what's happening, um, being distracted by treatments, um, being on treatment treadmills and not actually having a chance to say, what, what's happening? Is this working? Um, if it's not working, what do I need to do to sort out the rest of my life? 
Um, so having when people have that opportunity taken away from them, um, death can be very traumatic, not only for the person that's dying, but, but for the people around them. And did you see that treatment treadmill kind of going on too, too much in some instances? Yeah, I think so. So I saw people dying with, um, you know, eight machines around them um, still being given lots and lots of different treatments um, and they, they died regardless and um, there was no recognition of what was actually happening. Yeah, that made me sad. Yes. <laughs> well, but it sort of fits with the way in which we often talk about diseases like cancer. Mm. I mean, mm. when, when people talk about cancer, particularly at funerals, they use mm. these battle metaphors. Mm. They fought against cancer. It was a mm. war and, and, and they kept on fighting. Mm. And I guess in that framework, palliative care is, is a bit like giving up, like putting up the white flag. Yeah. Uh, do you see that sometimes in people? Yeah, so people will die as they've lived. So some people will never stop the fight, okay, but it's actually not everyone. Um, there's, there's some people that say they'll fight to the end. You know, they've got young kids or they've got things to live for, and I totally respect that. So they'll try everything. There's probably a bigger portion of the population that actually think enough's enough. When treatment, the burdens of treatment um, are more than what they're getting out of it. And a lot of people end up saying that longevity isn't what they want, but they want quality. So, you know, working out what the goals of the person are are really, really important and of the family. And that's not always easy because um, often family members can disagree with the person themselves. Mm. Um, so that in itself is part of the work we do in palliative care. Uh, having on honest conversations and talking and um, letting people have their say and listening, listening a lot. <laughs> um, and trying to work out how we can actually fulfil their needs, um, whatever they are, because everyone's so different, the needs are so different. Um, so I, I do hear that, the giving up, um, and I don't think anyone that's dying is giving up, really. Um, their body is dying and it is a natural process, um, whether it's, well, usually because of disease processes. And we, even though we'd like to be able to cure everyone, we just can't. We just can't. So there's also a sense of um, just being in that place that you're not going to get better and that a certain sense of acceptance that this isn't what I expected, but this is how it is. And that gives people the opportunity to talk and say things that they would like to say. Um, and I think anybody living with uh, that sort of disease process is brave. I don't, I don't feel like they're weak or giving up. Mm. And I'll just make one other comment. There's a certain sort of movement around um, some beliefs that people have that you can cure yourselves. And when that actually doesn't happen, there's a massive sense of failure. So, yeah, there's lots in that question. Mm. Um, yeah, I've met a, a lot of brave people. 
even if they're choosing to not have treatment anymore. I still think they're great. Yes. Mm. And what I've seen of the sort of studies on placebo effects and mm. mind over body seems mm. to suggest mm. that it's most applicable in the area of pain, that mm. we're able mm. to, to do something to control our pain, but mm. that if you're talking about something like uh, a heart valve not mm. working mm. or cancer metastasizing, yeah. that the, the ability of willpower to change yeah. that biochemical process is, uh, yeah. is pretty limited. It is. Yeah. It is. And it's, people can feel very isolated mm. if they feel like they've failed in making things happen. Yeah. 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 So the, the role that you play there is that sounds like it's as much with the family as mm. with the patient themselves. It's a really vital part. So when we talk about people in palliative care, we, we talk about the person plus whoever's caring for them and loves them. And why that's so important is that if people die badly um, and families aren't well supported, then the community really has a heavy load of grief. Um, and complicated grief can... Um, you know, just go through a whole community, really. So we've, we've, we really need to get it right at the time. And, and it's not just one person, it's that whole family. And whatever family means, it could be the dog or the cat or, you know, aunts and uncles. It, it, family to us is just um, whoever's important to that person. And it must be the, the sort of march of timed wings chariots. So it mm. must, must be hard to deal with where you have... Uh, that sense that the person has a lot of work to do in a, in a short period of time. Yeah. Uh, how yeah. do you encourage that to happen? Um, how do you encourage um, the honest conversation? Of course, and it's, all, it's always person-led, so I don't lead the conversation. I get the person to lead it or the family to lead it. Um, I've found that working that way, so asking questions like, when you think of your future, is there anything you're scared about or frightened about? Um, you know, when, when you think about what's past or what's present, um, you know, what's on your mind, those kind of things, people will come out and tell you things. So people will say things like, I know I'm dying, but that's not worrying me. Um, who's going to look after my dog? You never yes. know what's going to come out when, when you ask the right questions. So mm. when I first started doing this work, I, I suppose I was quite nervous and you know, um, a bit scared to have these conversations, but I've had some really good mentors who've taught me to um, let the let the person themselves lead the conversation, and then you can't go wrong because you're not delving into territory that's not safe for them. Do you find yourself crying much in these conversations? I, I, I cry. I cried yeah, all the time. Yeah. I was here with, with, with Peter and with Liz, and in fact, I found yeah. it. I found it was hard to say the things I wanted to say because mm. uh, the, the emotions were sort of over, so overwhelming. Of course. Look, I cry. Um, I, I've had a fair bit of death in my own family and I, I sob um, when that happens. Um, I, I do cry um, every now and again. I, I have to remain a professional. I have to be effective and I have to be able to do this again and again and again. So... I've had to work out ways to protect um, that working self so that I can keep coming back. Um, and there's actually nothing wrong with crying, a little cry. Um, there's research done now that it's 
you know, people feel okay about it. It's not a bad thing. I'm glad we have research on crime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I, I think I remember you saying in one of our earlier conversations that you have to remember it's not your grief. It, no, uh, that's right. It isn't It isn't my grief. And, and that was another wise person who, who told me that early in my career. I um, was uh, easily, as a very young nurse, um, susceptible to... Uh, thinking things were mine <laughs> and taking them on and um, it just doesn't work and it, it isn't professional and um, you can't be effective. Yeah, it doesn't work. And what have been some of the uh, cases that have sort of jagged at your, mm. at your heart that mm. have really affected you? So doing this type of work, I, I think it's really, really important to know who you are and, and reflect on yourself. So being a mother... I've always found it difficult working with children and I've also found it difficult working with young mothers. Um, I'm getting a bit older now, so maybe I need to move to older mothers. But um, um, children, I, I have found that very hard. I've also found it hard lately working with people. I've had a couple recently who were both 100 and they'd actually been married for um, 79 years. It's wow. <laughs> astonishing. And that was sad. Yes. I, I cried with that one. Um, they were still in love. And um, so it's whatever the buttons, you know, whatever buttons are pushed. Um, so, yeah, with with the little baby, um, I, I had to actually stop before I went in and put on some armour of, of myself, for myself. Um, I really thought that it was important to be able to help this family through a horrible, horrible situation with a little nine-month-old boy who died um, from congenital abnormalities. Um, the family was amazing, but just walking in and, and seeing him, and he was beautiful. I saw him before he died. Um, and then working out what was important to them, and what was important to them was actually taking him home after he died. Mm. So... That kind of saved me because I had a job to do and I could yes. make that happen. So that, that yeah, I, I could be effective there and I did make that happen. Um, so I felt okay about helping in whatever way I could, even though, of course, you're thinking this is not enough, you know. Yes. If only the little one would be alive, you know. But that, that's not easy. But it's important. We don't want people to to feel isolated in if that happens. So I make myself feel that. <laughs> yes, yes. And I guess the the fact that most of us would just balk at the doorstep mm. there. Mm. I mean, the younger someone is. The, the mm. funerals of uh, younger people, I always feel mm. a little bit like it's a novel mm. with three quarters of the pages ripped mm. out, mm. whereas there's a sort of... There's a sense of wholeness about the funeral of somebody who's lived a long mm. life into their 80s. Mm. They've, they've had kids. They've had grandkids. It's, yeah. you know, it's almost like you've gotten to the last page of the book. Yeah. Um, but yeah. to be effective on those really yeah. young deaths must yeah. be so hard. And that was what I was dealing with in haematology too, a lot of young people, a lot of teenagers with leukemia. Mm. That was hard. Yeah. What... What does someone who's not a professional, or what can they, what, what advice would you give to somebody who's uh, confronting mm. the death of a teenager mm. who they're close to? Turn up. Turn up. Be there. Um, 
that's one of the hardest things to do. Um, it's much easier to run away. People that, especially young people, they're who are dying, they're so strong, they're amazing, they've got so much to give and, and they are still who they are and they have a lot of wisdom, I think. I think mm. there's a lot we can learn from them. I know I did. Um, learned a lot about courage. and Yeah, so definitely turning up and not running away um, and just being, being with them and let them laugh and let them be normal and... Um, you know, humour, I, I, it makes, might sound funny, but um, I use humour quite a lot and um, people will, will laugh and tell me funny stories. Yes. And um, that's quite a lovely thing to do when someone's dying. Yeah. Yeah. And you spoke earlier about uh, Brooke, who yeah. made quite yeah. an impact on you early yeah. in your career. Yeah. So Brooke was a lovely 15-year-old um, girl with leukemia and um, I was quite young at the time too I was in my early 20s and um, I suppose I was personally challenged by that um, she she wanted to have a friendship and I knew I couldn't outside of work and I did find that that challenging but I knew it was the right thing to do um, but she stayed in my mind um, that's 30 years ago now or yeah um, and she's given me strength I suppose to keep going and turning up how did she give you strength what did she say uh, do? not just being so normal um, when when you're around death and dying we don't have to change the way we're talking or lower our voices or just we just have to be normal just who we are um, you don't have to change or be sad all the time and um, so she was very playful and liked to, you know, she, she liked um, rock stars and sport and different things. So, yeah, just normalising that, that way of life and not expecting them to be different because they're not well. Mm. Mm. And how do you look after yourself in an environment like yeah. this? An environment, I mean, most of us couldn't work in a palliative care, care facility. Most of us would... Uh, uh, pick just about any job in the world apart from being around those who are yeah. at the very end of their lives. How do you keep yourself whole? Yeah. So I, I've been thinking about this. Um, this type of work is actually so giving to, to me, like it, it doesn't take from me. Um, you know, being with people in these situations, it's, they're very honest they will tell you things that they've never told anyone else. Um, it's quite intimate. There's a, they actually give you a lot, <laughs> um, which does help you to stay whole. And you know if you can help people, that, that gives you a sense of worth as well. Um, what's really important is to watch yourself um, when you, if you become a bit numb because mm. of all the grief and... You know, I have had times in my career where I've thought, oh, am I still feeling enough? Um, so if, if that's happened, I've actually swapped jobs for a little while, go, go do some research, go and do something else to get reinvigorated. Um, when we're talking about uh, the, the sort of effect we get when we're working with people in that time of their life, which is, yeah, pretty special time of their life, 
that that's sort of one part of keeping you up. But then um, doing some research, you can get some long-term gains and, you know, that can make mm. you feel good as well and you can look at system change. And um, The other thing that I think is really important is educating yourself because if you're well-educated, you think, well, you feel like you're doing a good job. If, if I felt like I was not doing a good job or I was harming people, it would be very detrimental. Mm. <laughs> um, and that can happen if you're not the right person and you don't have the right skills. So, yeah, so training, doing more, more training, yeah. education has been really good for me. Tell me more about that. How does a palliative care nurse harm? Oh, communication. Okay. Yeah. So what's, what is, what's bad communication so, like? Oh, I'm asking less in terms of yeah. your, your discipline, but more in terms of yeah. you know, what it is to be a good uh, carer or, or you know, just a visitor. Yeah, so not being person-led, so going in with your own ideas and your own agenda, um, asking people about death and dying when you actually don't know them. Yes. Um, yeah, you can easily say things that aren't appropriate, I suppose, and... Um, Sometimes people don't realise they're doing it. So we've all got our own beliefs and um, own ethics and everything that we believe, you know, ourselves, that's what makes us up. But if we decide to put that onto someone else and it's not the right time, it, it can be harmful. So the attempt for deathbed conversions yes. to some sort of political yes. cause or, or whatever Absolutely. else. Absolutely. Yes. All those sort of things. Or even just saying you're dying before right. you've got a good relationship. Yes. I, I would never say that to somebody. Yeah, yeah. I'd let them tell me. Yes. Yeah. And in terms of how you look after yourself, do you mm. go to the funerals of your patients? No, that was a decision I made early on. I, I started to do that. <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, and I ended up sobbing more than some of the people, relatives, and, and that's accumulative grief, and, and I knew that that wasn't good for me. I couldn't keep doing that. I couldn't sustain that. I sometimes have six deaths in a week and I've been doing this for, you know, um, 18 years now. That's a lot of people. So that's one of the boundaries I've chosen to put put down for me to, to, to look after myself. Yeah, I still get invitations and I just, I have to say, well, that's lovely that you've invited me, but, um, you know, because really we're, we're only invited into that family for quite a short time even even if it's two mm. years it's still it's still a short time yeah yeah and tell me about uh the some of the best deaths you've seen mm. uh, do you have is there one or two that stick in your mind that make you think well that's that's a that's a good ending yeah i suppose dying well and i i'll tell you about a couple but um it, it's not a simple thing. Um, there's many things that could help someone to say that they had a good death. So people talk about relief of pain and suffering. That's probably the biggest one they talk about. I don't want to be in pain. Can you help me with my pain? Can you help me with mum's suffering? So having people um, using medicine, I suppose, and, and other things besides medicine, but we do use medicine in palliative care, um, and giving them enough medicine to help them to be comfortable in their last days. Um, so 
you know, like today I was with a family who whose mother has dementia and um, she was very, very unsettled and very uncomfortable and that was yesterday and um, today she's really comfortable so they're much happier because of that. Um, and remembering that the people around are important and what they're saying is very important about how their life's going to be when after that person dies. Sometimes people think place, dying in a certain place, that can be important to them. So whether you're thinking about Aboriginal people going back to country or um, some people in Canberra, they want to die at Clare Holland House or they want to die at home or some even say, I want to die in hospital. And I think that's around safety a lot of the time. So a, a good death is a safe death. So somewhere where someone feels like they're cared for, um, they're safe, they're secure, mm. I, I think that mm. matters. Uh, some people want to be around their animals um, or children or family. You know, the people that are around them are important. Um, and I think, you know, we were talking last time that if death is recognised, and this is also a cultural thing because some cultures don't like to recognise death and you've got to respect that too, but... Um, the majority of, of people in Australia, with recognition of death, then you can plan and, and that's a better death. Yeah, so yeah. it's not, not an easy answer. Um, you know, you're looking to meet the specific needs of that person. Yes, no, but those, those elements really yeah. sound, sound really important. Yeah. And you can, can you give me a particular example of somebody who you feel has undergone what you'd regard as a good death? Yeah. So I met um, a woman a, a while ago who had um, congestive heart failure that was um, – she came out of hospital and prior to going into hospital, she was um, running her life basically and so a really big change. Um, she'd been someone who'd – been very much in control of herself and she'd used a lot of mindfulness um, throughout her life and she taught that actually. Um, when someone's breathless in palliative care we often use morphine and when the first time I met her I asked her what's important to you in this time in, of your life and she said look I know I'm dying but I really don't want to have morphine and um, yeah just working through that, that was her wish and she could clearly tell me what was important to her. So making that actually happen, um, we did it. So she was very, very breathless. Um, what, what I did was um, organise for people to be around her, um, for her to be in a chair, for her to have an open window and um, she died without having the morphine. And to me, that's a good death because she remained in control and she, her wishes were, ex were respected. Mm. Um, and she died. She was able to talk to me up until about two hours before she died. So even though I might have felt uncomfortable with the amount of breathlessness she had, she didn't. And this is yes. the way she wanted to do it. So um, we can't help but bring ourselves along when we're looking after these people, but we do have to listen. And, and respect. So I think that that was a good death. And being conscious too, I suspect, of uh, the extent to which conversations that need mm. to be had have mm. happened with the family. Absolutely. So there's another one where a woman had Parkinson's dementia and she um, had a very protracted dying 
over months. Um, and a lot of the work I did was actually with the family, coping with this and seeing this. Um, someone who's, you know, 20-something um, kilos as an adult um, lost a lot of weight. And um, I was able to keep her comfortable, but, but a lot of the work around conversations, what's happening, keeping people updated, um, and really supporting the whole family um, was really necessary. Uh, that family thanked me and said that that was a good death and it easily couldn't have been, you know, it easily could have been a terrible situation. Yeah. But they actually came out of it really well mm, mm. and um, and said that, you know, the, the actual support that they got was just vital to make that happen. And your specialty area of uh, mm. research is around dementia, which yeah. I've I've always struggled with in the sense that there's a there's a sort of impermanence about it. I feel mm. like when I'm having a conversation with you, mm. um, the things I say are things that you will not only take in mm. in this moment, but mm. also uh, you'll be aware of tomorrow and the next day. Mm. Whereas there's that sense of being with someone with dementia that uh, you're only living in the in in the moment and, yeah, and nothing sure. nothing lasts. It's a bit like sort of writing with uh, with a pen that's immediately erasing itself. Yeah. How do you how do you deal with that as a carer? Yeah. So, um, what what the memory loss is um, short term memory. So, what's really important is to understand. I suppose from my point of view, I I, I can talk. Um, really understand who this person is, what they did in their life. You know what was important to them. Um, Tell me who you are, you know, and, and getting to know those people, we can, they often will remember things in their past. Um, so, for example, I, I had a woman who just was so house proud, very house proud. Apparently, she made the best sandwich in Canberra for quite a number of years. And um, she also, you know, loved doing her washing and everything. So, getting her things to do that she used to like um, gave her something. Um, Gave she remembered how to open a peg and and peg something up and um, how to sort knives and forks and um, so even though there is memory losses and I, I'm not saying that that isn't significant it is trying to just find that person inside still is, mm. is vital um, you know and at the very very end that can be very difficult um, but right up until the end. Um, Everyone with dementia, they're all different. <laughs> and I suppose I was naive when I started working with people with dementia and I thought that once you had dementia, everyone was the same and it's just totally wrong. So I, I love working with people with dementia and finding out things that they can, they can do. Um, and, you know, just being, being around those people, I, I find it fascinating and finding out about their lives. Um, you know, I've met people who worked with Bob Hawke and oh, you, the stories are incredible, yes. incredible. Um, and just because they are who they are right now, it's not who they've been all their lives. So, yeah, that, that's really interesting. Um, what something I've noticed, um, and there isn't research on this, but <laughs> anecdotally, um, even if people have forgotten relatives right at the end, they still get... A, 
a sense of comfort from hearing their relatives speak as they're dying. So if I have someone who's restless and the family comes in and they start telling stories and, and talking and the person can settle down. And so I always say to carers, this is really important, this work that you can do. Yes. You, only you can do it. I can't do it. I, I'm not the person they're close to, but you can do it. This is really, really something you can give at this stage. Um, and a lot of people find that that's a lovely lovely yes. place to be yeah because <laughs> there has been so much grief and loss throughout you know whether it's been 10 years or or whatever yeah and that ability to sort of provide emotional cues mm. as well as to talk mm. intellectually there's this lovely bit in in McEwen's novel mm. Saturday where the main protagonist's a neurosurgeon and he visits his mother for an hour every Saturday and whenever she she begins to to be sad or to mm, cry mm. his response is to let out a big belly laugh mm, and say mum mm. that's a terrific joke yeah uh, and yeah. then she is cued into a moment of thinking that she must have said something funny yeah. and, the, and, the, and the moment the moment lightens as yeah. well yeah uh, and it's both sort of beautiful and sad in the way of and McEwen tells it yeah yeah no that's right uh, and one of the other aspects of the rewind that I imagine would be quite confronting is where people begin to forget their significant other. And, mm, and you even mm, occasionally mm. hear about moments where someone uh, forgets the person they mm. were married to yes. and, and then falls in love with someone else. Have you seen mm. that? Yeah. So, well, what I, I have seen people fall in love, um, not so much... Um, in the situation you've just said, but I've seen people at end of life fall in love, which is lovely. <laughs> I had one resident who had dementia and um, she probably years ago would have died in hospital. She had a bowel obstruction and we were able to keep her there at the facility. And in those last three months, she fell in love again. And that, that was absolutely lovely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that can definitely happen. It's, it may never be too late. <laughs> do you do you have some sort of deathbed weddings here at, uh, at Clare Holland? We do. Yeah, we do. We do. What are they like? Oh, it's usually with younger people um, and it's usually outside and then at the end and we try to make it a very festive whole, whole um, Clare Holland house gets involved. And we've had music, we've had bands, um, mm. Some, you know, grog and dancing. Um, just it, yeah. We've had some lovely weddings here. Really beautiful weddings that wouldn't be um, different, really, to other weddings. Yes. Yeah. And what about in sort of looking after yourself? Are there mm. are there other uh, are there things that you do to sustain yourself as a carer? You spoke mm. before about stepping off into into research. Are there yeah. other things that you use to replenish yourself? Because I've got six kids and a granddaughter living at home, um, I, I've learnt very much to shut off when I go home. And often my kids will say, you've got to be dying to get attention around here. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but anyway, I, I hope that's not all the time. Um, they know that my work's really important, but they're really important to me too. So um, I, I try to shut off and, and yeah, be 
be a part of who they are and a part of their lives um, when I get home. I, I did, you know, I have taken work home every now and again, but I really try not to. So that's another boundary. Um, when I'm at home, I'm, I'm at home and I'm with them and I'm present. So that gives me a lot to, you know, just being part of their lives. And they're all very much alive. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. And, and how has seeing a few thousand people die changed mm. how you live? Um, I feel that health is everything. Um, being healthy and being able to do things, um, don't take it for granted at all. And, and I suppose if you're not healthy, um, you know, get the help you need. And I, I'm probably a bit more of a risk taker than I may have been. Um, I took my whole family over to Sri Lanka and we volunteered with elephants for five weeks and taught in jungle schools and, um, you know, and people would say, well, you're crazy to do that. But um, that was wonderful, absolutely wonderful experience. And, you know, I tend to just jump off the cliff a bit more, probably with family, and, and do fun things, do things, why not? Um, money isn't everything at all. Um, I've never heard someone say I didn't save enough money or... I didn't spend, I spent too much money. <laughs> Nobody talks about that at end of life. Um, people talk about relationships and experiences. Um, very much so, living. They talk about living. Mm. And, you know, I, I do just want to make that comment that the work I do is, is about living. It's about living as well as you can. Uh, yeah. Uh, my wife, Gwyneth, and I will often talk about applying a deathbed test to something. Yeah. So, you know, if you have to make a decision between spending some money on uh, yeah. on, on ta taking ta taking a kid a kid away for the weekend for an experience yeah. versus yeah. Uh, buying a, a product mm. normally thinking about the fact that that on your deathbed you uh, you have in mind the experiences mm. more than the more mm. than the things mm. do you find yourself sort of applying a deathbed Ab test yeah in no, life? absolutely so memories and and working on memories having experiences is really important to me and um you know one day i just woke up and said we're going caving you know i've never done caving before but um and the kids go oh here she goes again <laughs> you know having a go at things yeah so yeah so we're expanding the scope of, mm. of what it is to live mm. Yeah. Mm. and and yeah never say never who knows what's going to happen and i wouldn't ask this of probably even my closest friends but um it seems reasonable to ask of you. How would you mm. like to die? Mm. So where I die isn't important to me. Um, not having pain or, or feeling like I'm suffering, uh, that is important. Feeling safe is important. Um, and having the people around me that that I love is and my dogs um, is important. <laughs> so um, I'm not actually worried about dying at home or hospital or wherever. That That's not a big thing for me. Um, I want access to medicine. That's important if I need it and not everyone needs it. Um, and, yeah, just being with the people and also being able to say things to the people I love. So having a chance to say, look, my time is coming. Um, I want to tell you this. You know, uh, saying things to people would be really important to me. Nikki Johnson, thanks very much for taking the time to talk today. That's okay.
Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Good Life. If you like this podcast, please rate us on iTunes. Next week, I speak with novelist Graham Simpson, author of The Rosie Project, about love, autism and writing.